Hello and welcome to The Experience Pod. The Experience Pod is a one-on-one interviewer-led podcast that discusses the adoption and utilization of relevant emerging technologies and trends for impact-oriented professionals, researchers, developers, and students who demand realistic and thought-provoking perspectives on the opportunities and challenges presented by these phenomena in our unique environment. My name is Dr. Damola Oladosu, and I work on the disruption team here at the PwC Experience Center. In 2019, 37% of total funding to African tech companies went to Nigerian companies, indicating a clear buzz around the Nigerian entrepreneurial ecosystem. On this episode, we continue our Building the Future series by exploring various trends that are driving this growth. Our guest today is Eloho Gihan Bellu, the CEO of Endeavor Nigeria, who will be discussing how Endeavor is supporting Nigeria's entrepreneurial ecosystem. We'll be discussing the key challenges faced in the development of this ecosystem and the strategies being put in place to overcome them. Additionally, we'll explore the role that startups play in shaping Nigeria's economic future and how we measure the impact that these companies are having. So thank you for coming, Eloha. For those who might not be familiar with you, could you walk us through how Endeavor Nigeria was started, what you've been involved with since its launch? Sure. So Endeavor Nigeria, we started or we launched in Nigeria in 2018. We're actually part of a global network of Endeavor affiliates offices in about 60 cities across the world. There are Endeavors in 38 markets predominantly in emerging markets, but we actually prefer to use the word growth and underserved ecosystems, which fundamentally means that we launch endeavors in endeavor offices, endeavor chapters in ecosystems where you have a thriving startup ecosystem and you're starting to see companies emerge at what we call the scale-up stage. Those scale-up stage founders and their companies, which tend to be massive drivers of productivity and not necessarily have the kinds of support they continue to need, right? Because they're still growing companies. So we really focus on companies that are at the scale-up stage. There are um, Endeavor affiliates in 38 markets, including six in Africa, um, specifically Morocco, Tunisia, Egypt, Kenya, Nigeria, and South Africa. Endeavor Nigeria specifically was launched in 2018 with the support of the Omidyar Network. Not a lot of people know that. But also, of course, with the support of 10 business leaders who are in Nigeria, um, who built their businesses in Nigeria, continue to build their businesses in Nigeria. And they really saw a need to support the entrepreneurial ecosystem through a platform like Endeavor. So for us, really, our objective is to help, like I said, companies at the startup stage and founders that are at the startup stage, but to support them with sustained access to capital and specifically access to what we call frictionless or smart capital, mm-hmm. access to new markets, um, helping them sell more efficiently in their existing markets and into new markets, access to mentors, experienced mentors that have seen companies transition through the stages that they're at um, in different markets across the world, access to business networks, access to peer communities. Um, these founders are often at the frontier of their own ecosystems, right? Because they're at the scale-up stage. Mm. So we're connecting them to other founders that are also at the frontier Mm. within their ecosystems and markets that they're in. So that sort of helps also with their peer-to-peer learning and Mm -hmm. knowledge exchanges. We also facilitate what we call access to talent. Talent being, you know, a big issue in in our own ecosystem and many others as well. Okay, interesting. So you mentioned that Endeavor is focused on developing entrepreneurial ecosystems and obviously like delivering impact. 
So given the high probability that most entrepreneurs within a developing environment would claim or at least say that they're having some kind of impact, would you say that this is an easy thing? How do you assess um, impact? And do you have any kind of hard metrics that you can share with us regarding how you're doing that? So we, interestingly, we, we actually never describe ourselves as an impact organization. Endeavor has a very specific view on impact. We think that, you know, a job is the strongest poverty alleviation solution that you ultimately can have. A high quality job, even better. And that's really how ultimately you deliver. Uh, We really do think it's the most effective uh, mechanism for things like poverty alleviation. So for us, when we talk about impact, we actually are very specific about what that means for us. We talk about high impact entrepreneurs being our focus. And those are entrepreneurs who are typically building companies for scale. They're thinking very big around how they want to build their businesses. They have proven that they have capacity to scale businesses up to a point and, and they need the support to continue to scale those businesses beyond those points. But then critically for us as a third dimension, with, which I think um, tends to be missed sometimes when people talk about what impact is for us, it's really the mindsets and the entrepreneurial mindsets. We're very big on what we call multiplier effects. We're very big on values of giving back and paying it forward, but in very specific ways. So we think that when entrepreneurs have scaled their businesses, when they've been successful, when they've helped create widespread um, jobs and alleviated poverty through those jobs, and they've helped to generate wealth for themselves and for their employees, for example, then the next phase really of their entrepreneurial journey is around recycling that experience and that capital for the benefit of their own local ecosystems. And we spend quite a bit of work with our entrepreneurs on creating those platforms and creating those opportunities for them. So you once said that whenever I explain Endeavor's model, I generally end up saying some variation of raising capital is the easy part and the best entrepreneurs get it. That's quite an interesting take considering existing perspectives on lack of access to capital for growing startups or small businesses, and even Endeavor provides um, capital to small businesses. So could you expand more on, I guess, like that line of thinking? Sure. I think the danger with lifting uh, one (laughs) sentence of what somebody says is it loses context. Mm. And that particular phrase, I think you've taken out of a longer sort of Mm -hmm. blog post, right? But I think the point that I was trying to make there is one that there's actually quite a bit of information out in and outside of Endeavor to support, which is the idea that if you probably surveyed some of the best entrepreneurs globally and you asked them, including in Nigeria, mm-hmm. interestingly, and you asked them what their primary challenges are, they'll mention capital, but they wouldn't necessarily put that on the top of their list. And you could argue that, yes, they have had some track record of success, so they raise capital more easily than earlier stage entrepreneurs. That may be so, but um, the reality is the challenges that the entrepreneurs tend to worry most about and to give them the most sleepless nights tend to be around things like their talent needs, their market access. And there's also a philosophy around the best way to attract capital into your organization is to focus on building a great company, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's the spirit in which that, that particular phrase was taken. Mm-hmm. I think the World Economic Forum as well has quite a bit of research around this. They've been doing this, their Entrepreneur um, of the Year competition mm-hmm. for many years now, and they have regional ones. And I believe it was actually their own data set and their own subset that went into the WEF work that was done a few years ago. Um, that if you effectively take entrepreneurs who have been through some of these this journey, this scaling journey, and they've successfully scaled their companies, they successfully IPO'd, they would say, you know, the most important thing for them ultimately 
the capital was important too, but more important than that, um, perhaps some of the dynamics around their talent needs and finding the right talent to bring into the company at the right time. Um, technical and non-technical talent as well. So if you were to rank in terms of critical factors for scale, would you say talent comes before capital? Our, our entrepreneurs would say that, yes. So I mean, but I mean, to be fair, I think it's important to sort of nuance that view, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like they would say capital absolutely yeah. doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I put it l- number 10 on my list, not yeah. at all. Yeah. But generally, it, it is not the single most important determinant of success. Okay, so we just touched a bit on the importance of talent and knowledge in the entrepreneurship um, space. So when we look at VCs globally, discussions on portfolio diversity in terms of gender and race often center around lack of inclusion, can limit the potential impacts that our society could be having. We think that another and maybe a less discussed way of categorizing talent could be those with existing network and influence and those without, especially in a country like Nigeria. So if we, to profile some of the early stage and growth stage companies gaining significant traction in Nigeria, we see some talent with like preformed business networks and influence, or maybe based on their family background or education or professional experience. And so the question is, is the talent landscape in Nigeria in terms of like growing your business, is it skewed towards these types of entrepreneurs? Is there any kind of bias? What are your thoughts on that? I think, though, that I can speak on talent more broadly and I can speak on access. Right. I think when we speak about talent at Endeavor, we're talking about two kinds of talent, the talent and the entrepreneurial capacity of the entrepreneurs themselves. Mm -hmm. Right. So taking a company from zero staff to seven, right, is one journey. And seven actually is an inflection point. Taking it from seven to 50 staff is another sort of journey. But that journey also looks very different when you're starting to have a conversation and you're starting to navigate your capacity and your ability to take your business from 50 staff to 500 staff. And so part of what we try and do in supporting Endeavor entrepreneurs on that journey, excuse me, is helping them respond quickly to the leadership angle around the talent that their companies need. Outside of that, there's also the talent question around, of course, the people and the employees that work at the company, right? And how easy or difficult is it to find people at the right stage? When your company gets to that stage, how easy or difficult is it for you to find talent to meet your company's needs, one? But also, too, how quickly are you able to anticipate your company's talent needs as a leader, right? So that you know that within the next year, for example, the profile of CFO that I need is going to look a little bit different because, for example, I've now gone from being a Series B or a Series C founder to thinking about potentially even something like an exit, which I'm so excited about the day that we'll see those kinds of (laughs) dynamics playing out in Nigeria. But I think the point I'm making is that there's the talent of the entrepreneurs themselves and the co-founders, etc. There's also the talent within the teams and anticipating how the talent needs of the company evolves and also looking and anticipating how you resolve for those talent gaps. And that's what we mean when we talk about talent. I feel as if the question you're asking me is about entrepreneurial talent more fundamentally and asking about maybe do we think that there's strong entrepreneurial talent within certain communities or founders and there are others? Yeah, um, and, and, and whether we're really thinking about how we're including people who may not be within these communities. No, I agree. I think that, I mean, I agree with the idea that access 
more broadly. There are challenges of access more broadly. And I agree that VCs, investors, different sort of players within an ecosystem like this have different lenses, different approaches to sort of how they screen for that dimension of entrepreneurial talent. And I think that there are certainly gaps. I think to your point around race, I think that, you know, that conversation is relevant in the U.S. I think the conversation around female entrepreneurship and female representation is important everywhere across the world, etc. And there's certainly strong evidence to suggest that a lot of the screens that VCs use today are just suboptimal, right? And those screens come from a number of things. They some of them, sometimes it's bias and gender, for example. But sometimes it's even little things like, you know, I was in a session last week where um, somebody made the point that the second you say to a founder, send me a deck, you've already presupposed that one good metric or one good screen is somebody's ability to put together right. a deck. I mean, arguably you can buy that skill set, right? So as a serious founder, maybe you should buy that skill set mm -hmm. or pay someone to build you a great deck. But I, I think the point is well made. Do I think that those gaps exist? Absolutely. Do I think though that to respond from Endeavor's point specifically, if I think about the entrepreneurs that are within our own portfolio today, I think we have, I think to be honest, most of my founders or at least half of my founders are not Ivy League founders are not people who went to Ivy Leagues. I think where we have a gap today and it's true of my portfolio in Nigeria, it's true of our portfolio globally is that we don't have a 50-50 or a gender balance ratio on the women. I think we're doing much better than the VC community. I think today, something like 20%, 15-20% of Endeavor founders are women. We even have a couple of sort of all-female teams, et cetera, which we're very excited about. But I think the goal of sort of broader equity and equality in that area is one that is we, we take very seriously. But do I think that do I think that VCs have perfect screens? No. Do I think that the lens around where someone went to school is an imperfect one? Absolutely. Interesting. So what do you think then it would take to identify a hundred million dollar potential that's marginalized by access to network? Well, I don't know if I think a hundred million dollar potential is marginalized. <laughs> that's why I don't know if I think I'm not sure. So let's, say, let's, so let's say there's like let's say there's some guy somewhere in the middle of nowhere but super brilliant has this brilliant idea but really he's in the middle of nowhere and has no access what kinds of things do you think need to be in place to identify those types of talent well let me tell you how we think about what the profile of an endeavor entrepreneur looks like i think you've touched on one of them in that you mentioned the idea right but unfortunately, but I think rightly so, ideas are really ultimately not enough, right? So for us, it's saying we're looking for those entrepreneurs with the big ideas, right? We want big ideas and we want innovative thinkers and we want people who are pushing the boundaries of their ecosystems, right? And people who are not satisfied when someone says, for example, Paga is already successful. He's probably looking at you thinking, are you joking? This thing has, you know, this company could be five exercise of what it is today. So we're already looking for founders that are challenging some of those mindsets around what success looks like in, in some of these smaller, I guess, and underserved ecosystems. And I'm thinking quite big around what the potential could look like. But beyond an idea, though, they have a track record around their ability to take a company up until that scale up stage. I think the third dimension around how we think about what endeavor entrepreneurs look like is something around what I alluded to before, which is really ultimately their mindsets and their culture and their desire to want to pay forward their success over time within their ecosystems. And the reason that is so important to us 
is because ultimately we think that that is how you drive what we call multiplier effects. And if you think about the things that make the more successful ecosystems more successful, and you know, you could argue which comes first, chicken or the egg, but ultimately I think they tend to be very, very strong networks and strong multiplier effects within these ecosystems because you have founders and VCs and entrepreneur support organizations that are working with each other in these sort of very collaborative ways. So everybody's impact goes beyond their own direct impact or the next employee. And you're able to sort of look at things like how many people they influence even beyond their own ecosystems and how many people they inspire. You're able to look at things like beyond how many people they employ, how many companies, those people that employed, they employed and went on that scale journey with them how many then went on to form their own companies, which then employed thousands of people. And I think those are the kinds of dimensions that for us, we think about when we worry about where the $100 million revenue companies are going to come from. It's across those kinds of dimensions. In terms of metrics or in terms of questions, many of the questions and many of the ways in which we would assess a business's potential to be a $100 million revenue Sure, it's not vastly different, at least from a numbers metrics perspective to the way that your typical VC would, right? And in fact, a lot of the people that are part of our selection process in and outside Nigeria tend to be serial entrepreneurs, experienced investors, etc. So that dimension around, look, does the business model fundamentally work? Do we think it has scale potential, etc.? All of that is taken care of. But beyond that, is this really an entrepreneur that says, you know what, who says I can't build a company out of Nigeria into Brazil or into Mexico, etc., right? And sort of really are pushing the boundaries of, of what big looks like in the context of Nigeria. And I think all of those three things are what go into the alchemy for us of what makes the next $100 million revenue potential companies. So we asked e. Abuyeji, the CEO of Future Africa, this question. I would love to get your perspective on it as well. So as businesses um, launch in Nigeria, we hear a lot about our demographics, statistics, population growth, and rate of urbanization in Lagos, for example. But we like to think that increased population and rapid urbanization could also come with their own challenges, whether it's resource scarcity or added pressure on services. And what we see today is companies finding opportunities to solve existing challenges that we face in our current environment. How much are you seeing companies designed with a medium to long-term lens on these somewhat far but imminent challenges and trying to create business opportunities around them? So I guess first thing is I actually don't think that some of these challenges that you describe are um, actually far. Okay, Um, cool. (laughs) I think we see them already today. I think you see them in the strain on our public transportation system, right? We're talking about Okadaban, Okadaban, and we've all felt the strain. We felt it in the greater traffic. I cringe every time I drive down Uzumba and you see at the bus stops and those hotspots where you see people standing under the sun for ages, just like waiting, waiting for, for the next, transport, for right? the next what have you, right? And I think if you look around our environment more, more fundamentally, I think where there have been sustained infrastructural lapses and things like that, that's where you see that that urbanization that's where you see the street, really, right? It's really taken a strain. Um, yeah. So I, do, I, I don't actually think that it's far. I think it's here. I think it's in our waste and sort of how we're dealing with waste. I also think that in as much as there's this need to sort of catch up, there's also, of course, there's also, you know, technology and new technologies are also probably at this point now being revealed at a much faster pace than ever before, right? So you also have a world that's not sort of waiting for you to catch up. So do I see businesses that are trying to create opportunities around them? Absolutely. Uh, I think it's almost easy to think that the opportunity set is done and it's complete just because Cobo 360 has launched a platform for trucks or just because, I don't know, a rent source 
um, or a Daystar Power has started to address the question of sort of off-grid power solutions and optimization and stuff like that. But, you know, when you talk to these founders, they're still innovating around their business models. They're still finding that their technology is potentially cheaper and wider available then they have to look for other ways to continue to be competitive in their spaces interestingly i was with a founder who's in the broader sort of power space um, and we're talking about different strategic choices that he's made in the business um, when i asked him why he hadn't focused on your more industrial commercial client he says look for me i just i think in as much as i could build a successful business around that what i'm really looking to do through my business is to be innovative and to be impactful in my and that's a for profit business right mm. to be innovative to be impactful in ultimately whatever we build and i think that the strongest opportunity to drive impact and to innovate is if we're able to deliver solutions on the residential side. Mm-hmm. So I think founders continue to innovate. I think that we're certainly not at the point where you have founders who, and I, this is not what you asked me, but I don't think we're anywhere near the point where you have so many business. You know, it's one of my bugbears is when people say everyone is copying everybody else. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's not really the sense that I have. You have the founder and the team at 54 Gene who are doing work around African genomes and all of the opportunities that that throws up. So there is actually widespread innovation around us. And of course, that particular example then opens up opportunities for innovation in healthcare, etc. right? So it is happening. I think sometimes it's almost easy to take it for granted because somebody has launched something mm-hmm. in that area. Mm-hmm. So there is enough innovation there. Mm-hmm. Not at all. Okay. I think we'll probably touch on that a little bit um, further in the podcast. So in 2017, USAID released a report explaining how the approach to unemployment in low-income countries should take into consideration the characteristics of their national economies. So for example, for Nigeria, it argues that an employment strategy that focuses on self-employment rather than anticipating an increase in demand for formal wage um, employment would be more effective for livelihood development. You recently wrote an article where you pointed out that the number of medium-sized companies has shrunk by 60%. So in this sense, is the higher number of micro-enterprises and reduction in medium-sized companies a representation of scale limitations? Or do you think it's a thing where um, the market is really just taking its true form that is most likely and most necessary for its current local context? I think those are two different things, right? So is the market taking its true form or is this the form that is most relevant for its current local context? Mm-hmm. I actually think are two different things. Mm-hmm. I think people have to live and people have to survive. For example, I think there's often statistics around how Nigerians are highly entrepreneurial. I think Nigerians have to be entrepreneurial in many ways, right? Which I think is, is the point that you're making. Mm-hmm. So that USID says this, I'm actually not mm-hmm. very impressed by because I think we knew that anyway, right? That people mm-hmm. are, are finding avenues to generate additional income for their families and for themselves outside of the formal employment structure because there's just a limited number of jobs there, one. Mm-hmm. And then two, if you look at job creation numbers versus the gap in sort of employment, at the pace we're going, if you sit around waiting for a formal job, you'll just you just sit at home your entire right, life. Right? Right. So I think that there is a role or there is an impetus, put it that way, for people to sort of generate income outside of formal employment. I think that goes without saying. Do I think that our true form is this? No, I don't. I can't imagine how it could be. Mm-hmm. Because if you look around and you look at what those, for example, those SME figures that you said that I referenced mean and those medium-sized company figures, or if you look around as to what this sort of side hustle means, for example, to look at the MBS numbers and to look at that 60% of medium-sized category company has shrunk, the question we should ask is, okay, so if that category has shrunk, right, what are the dynamics within that? Mm -hmm. Um, I think a couple of things. I think, first of all, we're finding that companies are not growing beyond 
a certain point, right? Mm-hmm. I think the data is something like there are 40, 41 million micro micro and small businesses in Nigeria who are usually employers of this data says employers of less than 10 percent the reality is i think if you peel beneath the layers of that data and it's even in the report most of those are actually sole proprietors right mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. i count one job one company one job one right. company one job right, right? Right, right and that company will probably never employ another person mm-hmm. i think it's important to imagine a worldview whereby for example every one of those 40 million companies employed another four people right if we're able to drive that kind of productivity, that's when you start to see the real changes, I think, ultimately in livelihood, because that'll go further and that'll go faster than having everybody own one company mm-hmm. and, and one company that isn't really ultimately paying taxes, one company that isn't necessarily driving any real sort of innovation, not necessarily in terms of high tech, right? But it's not necessarily taking an innovative approach to things. One company that is not necessarily a driver of learning and wealth creation and what have you for the broader economy. So, I, I, you know, that it is our final form, I don't ex- accept that, or it's our ideal form, I don't accept it. That is the form that we have taken by virtue of the fact that there are ultimately gaps in the capacity of the formal employment sector to absorb all of these, all of these industrious people, absolutely. But I do believe, and I think the data is there, right? If you look at, if you look at the more developed economies, and another bugbear I have when people say, we shouldn't compare Nigeria to developed economies. I'm like, <laughs> we really should. <laughs> you know, we really should ask ourselves, how did they get there? Right. What did they do? Right. And yes, of course, you know, where the dynamics within which we are trying to build our own economy is very different from the dynamics under which, for example, the United States built its own economy over the time that it did or it has done. But I think to sort of close your eyes or close your mind to the idea that there are lessons to be learned, I I personally find that a little bit naive. But the truth is, if you look at what's happened in, or if you look at today, the economic structures of places like the United States and, and Europe, and then you sort of track that and you look at sort of, I guess, middle income countries as well, and you look at lower income countries as well, they tend to be a lot of African countries. What you find is this really interesting dynamic. And I've got some of the numbers here because I can never remember them off the top of my head. (laughs) But for example, in Nigeria, we talk about 41 million or so MSMEs. Mm -hmm. I can't remember what the comparable number is in the US. I think I remember seeing that in Germany. The number is half that. Mm. In terms of number of micro companies by per million people, Nigeria Mm -hmm. has about 220,000 micro companies per million people. In the US, they have 15,000. They have less than 10% of what we have. Mm. If you look at large companies per million people in the US, they have about 100. In Nigeria, we have about four. And so I think that should worry you if it's saying, look, fundamentally, our economic structure, if you look at the broader economic structure of more successfully, and this is true, by the way, not just for the US, yeah. if you look at the US, you look at Europe, and you start to, start to track that trend mm-hmm. everywhere from more developed to middle to middle income to lower income, you find that, you know, it's pretty consistent. So we should ask the question, what needs to happen yeah. in order for our entrepreneurship landscape and our corporate landscape to look a little bit healthier? One end of, of that scale is actually not healthy. One end mm-hmm. of that scale is your is one by one company. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just where we are, right? So the question is, how do we kind of move a little bit further to the left of that dynamic? But none of that means that even the US hasn't achieved it, right? Nobody's trying to create an economic structure whereby there are no SMEs right. or there are no middle-sized companies. Right, right. It is saying that you there are linkages fundamentally between having all of these things present in an economy. And there's a state within which an economy looks vibrant and it's creating jobs and it's creating innovation or it's generating innovation, creating wealth and it's lifting people out of poverty. 
And what we know for sure is it doesn't look like 41 million SMEs and 40 million jobs on the back of it. So what is what are some of the things that we then need to do to move more to the left? Well, um, every time I say this, people say, well, what about everybody else? I think how to help more founders that are at that scale-up stage go from scale-up to large company. And then once they've done that, how to help each and every one of those guys reach guys and girls, reach back, back. Mm-hmm. and lift the next nice. company that has mm-hmm. the cusp of that. Mm-hmm. And sort of. And I think then you start to see some of these multiplier effects that we talk about. I don't think it's an overnight solution. I don't think it's a panacea by any stretch of the imagination. But I do think that the strongest potential to create these jobs is by supporting the entrepreneurs that have the greatest capacity to do it. And I think one of the strongest signals around capacity is people's track records. I agree it's an imperfect system because the extent to which you can have a track record to a certain extent depends on the extent to which you have access. Exactly. Right? But I think in the context of, of what where we, we are. have, it's important that we really make some calls mm-hmm. right, around where we think that the next generation of large companies is going to come from. What kind of values do we think that we even want those founders to have? Is it enough for you to have built a large company but ultimately for, I don't know, for all the talents around running that large company to have come from a different part of the world and not necessarily to be talent that then gets retained in Nigeria. I think those are the kinds of questions that go into framing or building out, quote unquote, a master plan around where these $100 million revenue companies come from. The truth is we're looking at the data recently. I think globally, there's only something like $60,000, $100 million revenue companies anyway. Hmm. So it's a high bar, right? But that our ecosystem and the technology opportunity and the innovation dynamic, et cetera, cannot generate those. I don't believe that. Should we keep it as the bar? Absolutely. Because I think when the bar is high and we all sort of know that that's the goal and that's where we're heading, that's when you start to see some of these dynamics play out. Very nice. So we're going to switch a little and talk about fintechs, primarily because four out of eight companies in your portfolio offers financial services. I think in Nigeria, we're really seeing the dominance of fintech. In 2019, almost two-thirds of um, total funding to tech startups went to fintechs. We still have some challenges on credit assessment automation, internet penetration, cost of data, etc. Um, what do you think are some of the drivers behind this like strong interest in fintech that we're seeing? I think one of the major drivers is probably a little bit of FOMO, a little bit of people wanting to replicate the success that they've seen come out of fintech. But at the same time, I think that the fintech opportunity is certainly not anywhere near having been exhausted. For example, you mentioned the founders in our portfolio. Two of the fintech, and specifically the payments founders, for mm-hmm. example, in our portfolio, one is Tayo Viosu Opaga, mm-hmm. the other is GBI Bolao Flutterwave. And I know how much that pain point around not being able to successfully pay mm. 100% of the time. <laughs> that is the inspiration, the single greatest inspiration behind both of these companies. And until the day that they solve that problem, GB speaks all the time about trying to solve payments for Nigerians, mm. right? And until the day that that problem is solved, mm. they will continue showing up every day at Paga and at Flutterwave and, and, and pushing their team and dreaming big and all of those things. That was just one example, right? I think my point is the fact that there are companies already existing in these fintech verticals for the most part is certainly not also to say that these problems are resolved and they're solved. I mean, I know that in as much as I use all of these platforms, etc., I know that my payments experience in, in one part of the world is very different from my payments experience here. I love the fact that there's so many people trying to solve this problem for us. 
I guess the broader question was, why do I think there's so much interest in fintech? I think it's because the problems are not fully solved. I also think because fintech is an enabler mm-hmm. um, and because if we get credit rights and we get payments rights and we get international transfers right, I think there's so many different things that have the opportunity to be built on top of it. Whenever I sort of talk about this, I use e-commerce as an example, right? Seven years ago, all anyone could talk about in this ecosystem was e-commerce. I know that the challenge that a lot of the e-commerce players faced fundamentally came down to their ability to just collect payments, right? right? Their ability to deliver a product and get paid for it. And it's funny, I remember at the time, it was in this journey that I met someone like Sim Shagaya, for example, with Conga. And I remember the number of times he and I will have conversations about the fact that he was spending a lot of time thinking about solving this payments challenge. And here is somebody who's building an e-commerce business, right? I was lucky enough to be part of a session where we were just listening to somebody talk about the evolution of the, of the Middle East, North Africa ecosystem. And they were talking about how the ecosystem had, had developed or was developing in waves. And first there was fintech and there was payments and then the e-commerce mm. guys were able to build on top of that, mm. et cetera, right? And so... Are we just at the beginning of our... I our think way? we need to get payments right. I think if we get payments right, then you can do things like you can deliver successfully insurance, for example. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of those industries have their own specific challenges. Mm-hmm. And I think payments is also the channel or the tool around things like financial inclusion, right? Mm-hmm. It's also a tool around, I and mean, it's an opportunity, it creates an opportunity around things like tracking and mm-hmm. tracking where payments are going and who's doing what and, and security and mm-hmm. things like that. So I think mm-hmm. payments really is an enabler. I think payments, payments is a tool. And I think it is pretty important that we get it right. Do I think every founder that I meet that shows me the payments deck has a bright new idea? Not necessarily. Um, so we see a lot of fintech startups like the ones in your portfolio are currently leveraging API and blockchain technology, especially in the remittance space. So for Endeavor, the question is, how much is a business's focus on leveraging new technologies part of what you're looking for? And, you know, as a follow-up to that, what other new technologies would you like to see being employed in the fintech space in Nigeria or other sectors that you might be interested in? Sure. So we talk about innovative business models. Interesting, we never talk about innovative technologies necessarily. Sometimes innovation, I guess, is in the technology, but how often does that really happen anywhere in the world? And I suppose by innovative technology, I mean high tech, right? We don't have that as a specific lens around. We worry about the extent to which a business is differentiated, right? And is able to be innovative and push the boundaries and and infuse new thinking into the way that things are done. That said, there are founders within Endeavor that are doing some crazy things um, with technology all over the world, right? I started the podcast by talking about some of the Endeavor entrepreneurs that are in some of the markets that we're in. Mm -hmm. There are about 2,200 or so Endeavor entrepreneurs globally. And those guys and girls are at the helm of about 1,300 companies. Um, And they include people like the guys behind Swivel and the guys behind InstaDeep and the guys behind Twiga Foods mm-hmm. outside of Nigeria, right? Also, the guys behind Kareem, which is the Uber in that yeah, part of the world, yeah, is not yeah. necessarily an innovative technology in that Uber had gone before them. And plus, really, they were aggregating technology and then sort of creating a, a business around the value proposition, etc. But, you know, it's really about, look, are you pushing the boundaries within your ecosystem? And we're a little bit agnostic as to whether the, not the technology itself is, is innovative um, or unique. Like we view technology as an enabler, ultimately. Yeah. Okay, we're going to switch to the fun part. What was the last prediction you got wrong? I get things wrong all the time, doesn't everyone? Most predictions I make, I get wrong. Just tell us the last one. 
the last one I got wrong. I don't know if I've, I, I, I don't know if I remember once, but I, I, let's put it this way. I make, I guess so many wrong. I don't even really retain them in my head at this point. I'm just like, oh, okay. And I move on. I make another prediction. Like it's fine. But two that I'm particularly watching. So at the beginning of this year, we thought it would be fun to make some predictions for the Nigerian entrepreneurship ecosystem. So we always talk about entrepreneurship ecosystem, not, not, not necessarily tech. And two predictions that I'm excited about, although I'm a little bit worried about the success of one of them, is we said that, or I said that I thought that the dust would settle on the entire sort of mobility space. At the mm. time, there was some noise around what was going to happen. They hadn't yet announced the ban. And I thought, look, this is going to be great for society as a whole once these companies start to really scale and take off. And it creates so many other opportunities as well um, in sort of adjacent sectors. So I still am super excited about that space. But it's a really complex space, even outside of Nigeria, right? Because it's public infrastructure and all of these things um, that are potentially being disrupted. So that our government has responded is actually mm-hmm. not unique to our government. Mm-hmm. And I'm not even sure that necessarily the response that they have is is unique. I think other governments has also banned or final, and things like that. Or and, final for that matter. Right? Or fine them and things like that. So my prediction is that the dust would settle and these guys would see some of them just completely, what's the word, fly out head and shoulders above the rest. I maintain that prediction okay. <laughs> for the year, although okay. that's my one that's looking a little bit more I feel dicey. like we need to re-invite you so that we yeah, can ask me this at question the end of the year. We'll talk about whether or not I was completely <laughs> wrong. The other one that I'm, I'm quite excited about, and I, I think there's plenty of time, is I think that we will start to see, and I think this year is the year that we see what I've called a rock star all-female founded team. And I think we'll see a team, women exclusively, uh, a rock star team. They'll be doing something crazy, innovative. And I think there'll be quite a lot of noise and buzz around them by the end of the year. That one is particularly close to my heart. I can't wait to see it. Okay, we'll see. We'll see. So what's one view you seem to find that very few people agree with you on? I have many views that very people agree <laughs> with me on or disagree with me on. One view that a lot of people disagree with me on I think I would relate it back to a question that you asked me earlier around what do we need to do to build some of these large-scale businesses. Mm -hmm. I think there's lots of things we could be doing. We could be removing barriers to innovation and removing um, barriers to to company formation and we could support companies with talent. But one thing I did say fundamentally was that I thought that we need to think about allocation of resources, right? And how when we talk about supporting entrepreneurs and supporting ecosystems, I think that we should support the entrepreneurs that are doing the innovative things and they're um, pushing the boundaries and all of these things, right? I don't think necessarily everybody should be an entrepreneur. I don't think that's a good thing necessarily. I think in the same way as you wouldn't, if you're trying to invest your money as an individual, right, you wouldn't give your money to every single um, fund manager out there expecting the same outcome every single time. I think you would do a little bit of work around where should I deploy this because I want to get the best return. And I actually think that maybe there needs to be a little bit of systematic thought more broadly. And to be fair, I think this answer is more relevant, perhaps, when you think about government allocation of resources and, and how we how we think about entrepreneurship within the context of a broader economic agenda. Mm-hmm. And then if we if it's if there's a true economic agenda and, and we and we agree and we acknowledge that entrepreneurship is a path to achieving a more vibrant economy, greater innovation, more widespread wealth, more jobs. If that is the goal, and if we all sort of are aligned there, then we should want to the set best, that that outcome out for the, the in the best success, right? Maybe. And I think, uh, but one thing I will say, you know, for the avoidance of doubts, I don't think that the screens for who the best entrepreneurs are are things like where people went to school and things mm-hmm. like that. I don't know what the 
what the best screens are. I think mm. we're also trying to figure this out. But I think that we shouldn't be shy about the fact that not everybody has um, the same capacity to build a large company. I, I think there's a more fundamental question around how we think, especially in an environment like this where it is important that we get it right and we get it right yesterday. So our previous interviewee, Abuji has a question for you. This question is. Did he set me up? <laughs> I feel like you know what this question is, right? <laughs> but his question is Is it possible to build large scale companies midstream? Or do you need to start from scratch with them um, within the first 90 days? And then beyond that is if you join a company along its journey, kind of midstream, how are these companies going to become bigger? Do these companies even have an ambition to scale? And how are you checking to make sure that they do that? And you meaning Endeavor? Yes. So he argues that even for companies that, the formative that you period for a company is the first yes, and even and even for companies that you join in those like formative period, mm-hmm. sometimes you know they start off wanting to be a big company, but then they get bogged down by like the pressures of Nigeria. Oh yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I think the answer to that question is in the fact that you have companies. You have founders who forget joining a company and founding a company, right? We use founders, founders, founders as if, you know, we invented entrepreneurship in the last 20 (laughs) years. There are entrepreneurs who have transformed businesses, right? Businesses that they had no involvement in the founding of. And they pick those companies up sometimes decades after those companies were originally founded. So that you have those examples, I think fundamentally disproves a view that says that if you don't do it in the first 90 days or you don't have that objective necessarily from the start and you don't um, follow that through all the way to year 10 of the business, right, and keep sort of that energy consistent, then it's not possible. I think you also, you know, one of the things that I feel very lucky to observe as part of Endeavor is there's a portion of our portfolio, not yet in Nigeria, but there's a portion of our portfolio where you have second generation founders who have taken family businesses and they reoriented those businesses new products, new distribution, new customers, new technology, and they've completely changed the trajectories of these businesses. I think the critical thing around changing the trajectory of a business is not really whether it's the first 90 days or, I don't know, it's the next 90 days. I think it's about inflection points. I think it's about finding companies and founders that are at inflection points, which is one dimension around how we think about endeavor selection. I think it's about helping those founders get access to the best places to ask the questions that come along with being at an inflection point. I think what a scale, a a model for scale or successful scale company in, I don't know, payments looks like in Nigeria, the journey to that will necessarily be different to what the journey, what the answer to that question is like in the United States or even forget the United States in Latin America and in Southeast Asia, right? So for us, it's about exposing entrepreneurs to air opportunities, mentorship and all of those things that allow them to get answers to those critical questions at those inflection points. So yeah, I guess the answer to the question of can you join a company midstream and change the trajectory at which it grows? Yeah, I think that's fundamentally what we believe in. And I think rather than, like I said, the age of a company or time from formation, as it were, I think more important is the inflection. So in that respect, what's one perspective that you'd like to get from our next interviewee? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Tosi is a friend, so I'm not sure if that means I should um, be easy on her or hard on her. Be hard. Yeah, should be hard. (laughs) Okay, here's what I'll ask Tosi. What do you think the right role of the public sector 
is in the entrepreneurship ecosystem. Should the public sector be allocating resources? Are they the right agents within the broader ecosystem to do that? Does she agree that there's a potential conflict there, right, when you have public sector who more broadly is concerned with all very important things, but not necessarily always going to be the most efficient allocator of resources? Okay, cool. Thank you for coming, Eloha. We really enjoyed this conversation and we hope you've enjoyed it too. I did, thank you. Thank you.